If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to grab it, or you can open that Bible app, but join me, if you will, in Psalm 133, Psalm 133 today. You know, over the last few months, we have been in a study together through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, and we've been calling this series On the Way. These are pilgrim songs, these are discipleship songs, songs that address a number of different topics of how we live with and for the Lord. I want to go ahead and begin by reading this psalm, Psalm 133. It's a short psalm, only three verses long. It's attributed to King David. And here's what what David writes. You can follow along as I read this. He says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So as we're, uh, we, we've just read here, this passage this morning has to do with unity. And in fact, in verse 1, it comes right out and says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There's a modern translation of this verse that goes like this. How, how wonderful and how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. Unity and getting along. It's easier said than done sometimes, isn't it? Especially when brothers are involved because brothers don't always get along. I mean, some of us have been brothers, some of us are brothers, some of us are raising brothers, and sometimes brothers fight. Eugene Peterson makes an interesting observation about this. He says, the first story in the Bible about brothers living together is a story of Cain and Abel, and it is a story of murder. There's an old songwriter from years ago, when I was a kid, he wrote a song about brothers, and and maybe if, you're, if you have a brother today, maybe this song resonates with you a bit. But this guy writes about his brother and he says, You drove my car when we were young boys and tore it up too. You never paid to get it fixed and you got me beat up a time or two. I know I should forgive and forget, but man, I still hold a grudge against you. Because we're brothers, brothers, brothers. And I don't approve of anything you do because we're brothers, brothers, brothers. Cain and Abel, and me and you. Unity might not be the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about brothers dwelling together. In fact, what comes to your mind might be quite the opposite of that. And sadly, it's sometimes not just true in our physical families, but that's also true at times in the family of God. Psalm 133 is a song that's not so much about literal brothers, but it's about spiritual brothers in a community of faith. And we know that the scriptures tell us that for those of us who have a common faith in Jesus Christ, we are family, that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. But in the same way that that we sometimes struggle with our nuclear families to have this unity, there is also a challenge that we face within the spiritual community, the spiritual family. In fact, some people have said that if you want to see a good fight, you don't need to go to a boxing match or an MMA fight. No, you just need to go to church. Because just like good brothers and sisters can bicker 
uh, at, at times over things. We can bicker and fight over anything. We can fight over things like paint colors and Bible study topics, budget items and church policies, service projects, and a whole host of other things. That's why this psalm is so important, because it reminds us today that unity, that togetherness, that getting along in the body of Christ is a wonderful, beautiful thing, and that it deeply pleases the Lord. And so as we talk about this topic of unity within the church this morning, the first thing that I want us to see here in verse 1, I want us to see that there is pleasure in unity. The, the pleasure of unity that David describes here. He says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is good. It is pleasant. It's pleasing. Now, if you're a parent, especially if you have kids who are living at home, you know that there are a few pleasures that are greater in this world than seeing your kids love each other, treat each other with kindness and respect, and get along with each other. And, on the other hand, there are very few things that are more painful to watch than to see your kids arguing and bickering and being at each other's throats all the time. And here, David says that the same thing is true in the family of God. Unity is a beautiful thing. And when David wrote this psalm, he may have been thinking specifically about a time in the history of the nation of Israel where there was this unity during his reign, after there had been this great division uh, for quite a time under the, the reign of King Saul. He may have been thinking about the great festive ceremony where the nation came together and and experience unity that is being talked about right here. And I'm sure that the Israelites, as they traveled from their different towns and their villages and made their way up to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord at these various feast celebrations, they were reminded of the joy that comes from being together, of being united in the worship of God, of singing together, of praying together, of being one. Maybe you've experienced this before as well. We have a picture today that we're going to put up on the screen of a pastor's conference that I've been going to for the last 15 years or so. And uh, Every May, I drive from here to Chagrin Falls in Ohio. It's like a six and a half hour drive from here, uh, but, but I go there in order to get together with a bunch of other pastors from all over the United States, from all around the world. For three days, we meet together and we sing and we hear God's word being preached, we hang out, we have meals together, we, we just spend time together. And it's a great time of refreshment. When I read about this unity that is good and pleasant, this is one of the pictures that comes to my mind. What do you think about when you read about this? Maybe you think about a church service or a Bible conference that you have been to maybe in the past or maybe some spiritual event that you were a part of in the past that, that kind of comes to your mind where there's just lots of people who are gathered together in the worship of the Lord. There is something about the presence of God that was there in that moment and you were in awe and you experienced this overwhelming sense of joy and pleasure because of the unity that was experienced there in that moment. You know, as I think about this, the question that comes to my mind is, if unity is so pleasurable, then why is it that we don't see it more often within the church? Why is unity such a struggle at times? I think the answer to that is often that our hearts, um, we think that the greatest pleasure 
in life. It doesn't come from being unified with other believers, but rather our greatest pleasure in life comes from our own self-assertion. In other words, we think that our best chance of having happiness is not found in getting along with other people, but it's in getting our own way. And yet this psalm offers a better picture. It says, no, 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 no. Your greatest happiness comes from unity with your brothers. It comes from peace within the family of God. It comes from being at one with others in the church. And in some ways, this psalm forces us to then answer the question, well, do you really believe that? I mean, do we believe that getting along with brothers and sisters in Christ is actually more pleasurable than getting our own way? Leonard Bernstein, he was a great composer, a musical conductor in the 1900s. We actually have a picture of him here this morning, but one time uh, somebody asked Bernstein this question. He said, What's the hardest position to fill in your orchestras? What do you think the answer that he gave was? Well, his answer was second fiddle. Second fiddle. Because you see, to play second fiddle requires not only great skill, but also a willingness to not be the center of attention. And yet, without second fiddle and all the other second chairs, you don't have the harmonious, beautiful sounds. In fact, you have a sound that is really quite awful. You need all of the instruments playing together in unison with each other. And when that happens, it makes a beautiful sound and it brings great pleasure to the orchestra, the conductor, and the audience who is there listening. You know, as I think back on this, I think about a particular time in my life when I was tempted towards disunity. It's over 25 years ago now that this happened, but I was in line to be the next starting point guard for our high school basketball team who had a reputation of producing some pretty good point guards who went on to play college basketball. And that was a pretty big deal for a little town like ours. I had been our team's starting point guard for 7th grade and 8th grade. I had done everything that the coaches wanted me to do. I figured that if I just showed up and I played summer league, uh, the, the, the basketball the, the year before, my, or the summer before our, our freshman year of high school, that I would be the obvious choice for the position. But that's not what the coaches decided. At the beginning of my high school career, there was a guy who transferred from another school uh, than ours, and, and he came to our school and he got the position of being the starting point guard for our basketball team. I remember him coming to school. I remember how upset I was that I wanted my own way in that moment. I remember being tempted to prove to all the coaches and even to my own teammates that they had made the wrong choice, that that we were just going to fail because this other guy was the point guard and not me. And I'm not talking just about working really hard to try to prove that, but um, I'm talking about creating friction intentionally. I'm, trying, I'm talking about uh, getting everybody to turn against this other guy. But do you know what happened? By the grace of God, as we started playing together over that first year, we got along really well together. And we started making each other better. And what I found is that I actually experienced a lot of joy in playing second fiddle. Because we became good friends both on the court and off the court. And in the end, we actually became better as a basketball team in the years that would follow. Looking back, we we never would have been as successful as we were if this guy had not transferred 
to our school because if I had been the starting point guard, I just don't think we would have been as good. Let me ask you, might there be someone in your life right now, maybe even someone here at this church or even a group of people, that you need to seek unity with? You know, you think about our church today, that there are people from different economic levels, people from different races, different ethnicities, different political persuasions, different generations. And in order to see our church grow and thrive and reflect Jesus Christ appropriately in the days and months and years to come, we will have to give up some of our preferences. We're going to have to make some sacrifices for the sake of the church, for the sake of the Lord. And that can be a very difficult thing to do. There are times and there are situations where the Lord calls us to play second fiddle in order to preserve the unity of the church. But as we give up our right to the limelight, as we give up our right to our own desires and, assert our, and to assert our own preferences, do you know what happens? Well, there is this beautiful music of unity that happens. There is great pleasure in getting along. There is greater pleasure in getting along with each other than in getting our own way. That's the pleasure of unity that David talks about here in verse 1. Now, as he celebrates unity, I want you to also consider this morning next that he gives us these two pictures of unity. Two pictures of unity. Verse 2 and, and the first part of verse 3, David paints these two pictures of this unity that he celebrated. The first picture is really rather strange. It's kind of foreign to our modern day culture today. But in verse 2, he says that brothers dwelling together in unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. You read that, and you're, if you're like me, you're, you're thinking, well, what's going on here? I mean, that, that sounds kind of messy. I mean, to have oil just coming down all over your head and over your beard and over your clothes, I mean, I can't imagine uh, having to clean all of that oil up. <laughs> but in the ancient Hebrew uh, mind, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's a reminder of the anointing of Moses' brother Aaron when he became the high priest of Israel back in the days when they had left Egypt and they were wandering around out in the wilderness. We have a picture this morning that we're going to put on the screen of what a high priest in Israel would have looked like. But the high priest was a man who was appointed to serve in the tabernacle later on in that more permanent structure of the temple. He was given the responsibility of making sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people. It was a huge task. It was a big responsibility to be the person who met with the Lord in this way. But I want you to just imagine this being Aaron, uh, the high priest, for a moment. As he's being ordained to this position as the first uh, of the high priests, there is this fragrant, rich oil that, that is, is being made of the finest of spices, and it's poured down over his head. Now, that wasn't just a little drop of oil that was put on top of his head. No, this was a big jar of expensive oil poured down on top of him, and it ran down his beard. It ran down onto the collar of his robes. This was done in a ceremony in front of all the people of Israel this oil was a sign to the people of God that God was going to be present with them. It was a sign that God's spirit was upon Aaron, the high priest. 
as he performed the duties of sacrifices and cleansings, of interceding on behalf of the people. This sign of the Spirit of God being present upon Aaron was something that would point to an event that would happen centuries later when the Spirit was poured out upon Jesus, that greater high priest at his baptism. You see, God was blessing the people through Aaron in this ceremony. He's saying, this is a man that I have appointed to make atoning sacrifices for your sin. And through him, my forgiveness, my mercy is present with you. Of course, in Jesus, we have someone who is present with us, who is, has once and for all made atoning sacrifices for our sins. And just as God's spirit and his presence was generously, lavishly poured out on Jesus, so too today he pours out his spirit upon us, upon his church, so that we might be enabled and empowered to be the kind of people who would reflect and represent him well in this world. What this psalm is telling us is that when we have unity with each other in the body of Christ, it's like that oil being poured out. It is this generous grace of God that's being poured out upon us. That's what it's like when we get along with each other, when we are unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like when the presence of God is being poured out on Aaron through that oil. And so that's the first picture, but then there's a second picture that we read about here in verse 3, the first part of verse 3. This is still a little bit of an obscure picture to us, but maybe one that is not quite so strange as the first. Here, David says that unity among God's people is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Hermon was a 9,000-foot mountain in Syria, It's about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. It's known for its moist air, its heavy dew, its lush green surroundings. We we have a modern day picture of Hermon that we're going to put up on the screen. But you can see there this green grass. You can see the bushes around the surrounding area of Hermon. In contrast... Jerusalem was kind of like dry wilderness area. Often there's not a lot of rain in Jerusalem. And there's no natural springs there in Jerusalem. What the psalm is saying is that when the people of God are unified, it is such a wonderful thing that it's like the rich, abundant waters of Mount Hermon coming down on Jerusalem and being poured out on this dry land, this dry place. Now, that, that never happened, literally. Mount Hermon is too far away from Jerusalem for its dew to come down uh, on the city. But David says, when we are unified, it is like we have Hermon's weather in Jerusalem. A lot of us have never been to Jerusalem before. We've never been to this re- the region of Palestine before. And so maybe this doesn't compute a whole lot with us. But in modern-day American, North American terms, this might be like us living here in Chicago when it can get really, really cold in the wintertime. Maybe it's like the weather of San Diego, California, where it's always 75 and sunny. That weather coming to Chicago on one of those cold, blistery days. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if it was 75 degrees on January 15th here in Chicago? 
I mean, everybody I would imagine would leave work. They would skip school. They would go to the park. They would, uh, they, they would um, enjoy being outside for the day. And this psalmist says that unity, the unity of the people of God is like that. I want you to notice as well that both of these images with the oil and the dew, the, the unity is compared to something that is wonderful that comes down that it falls down, that it runs down, that the idea is this, that whether it's the oil that's running down or the dew that's falling down, the picture is of this unity that comes down from the Lord. It's something that God graciously gives to the church. It's not something that can be created or manufactured in our own strength, in our own power. It is something that God pours out. And now, how does he pour it out? Well, how does he give this unity to the church? Well, ultimately, we know that it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. Those who follow Christ have unity because He came down and gave His life for us so that we could be forgiven and free, so that we could be one in Him. And how can we have disunity? How can we have hostility towards someone who Christ has died for, who, whom Christ gave His life for? In fact, the Apostle Paul would write about this to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, we read this. He says, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by those who, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time Uh, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul goes on in the second part of his letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, to explain that the death of Jesus Christ not only reconciles us to God, But Christ's death also supernaturally bonds us with other believers who, uh, with with each other, with with Christians from all over the world, from different cultures and races and backgrounds. And Paul even talks about God knocking down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Now in Paul's day, bringing together Jews and Gentiles just didn't happen very often. It might be something like bringing together Bears fans and Packers fans, bringing together two groups of people who are very opposed to each other, two groups of people who are often hostile towards each other. Now, these people who are opposed to each other, who are enemies of each other, can love each other because they have this bond in Christ who gave his life for all of them. So these two pictures of unity, oil on Aaron's beard running down, and, and dew running down from Mount Hermon, they're emphasizing that unity is a great gift that originates from God himself. But, but what does that mean? What, what does it mean for us today? Well, it means that we're going to, if we're going to get along with each other, if we're going to have unity within the church, then We need to uh, first focus not on ourselves and not on each other, but we first need to focus on Jesus Christ, that we need to look to him first and foremost. Because what happens when we look at ourselves? What happens when we look at each other first? Well, we, we start noticing, you know what? 
I don't really like the way that he dresses. Or I, I don't like the, the kind of music that she likes. She likes some really strange music. He's a little bit too expressive in the way that he conducts himself in the worship service. If we look at ourselves and we look at each other, young people are going to look at older people and say, well, you know what, they're just way out of touch. And older people are going to look at younger people and say, hey, you know what, they're just so immature, they're so ignorant of things. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't talk about our differences. That doesn't mean that we don't need to dialogue with each other. We do need to do that. But we need to remember to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ who was sent down from heaven to save men and women, boys and girls from all different cultures and languages and ethnic backgrounds and economic backgrounds. When we keep our eyes on him, then we begin to experience this blessing of unity. So here's what I would encourage you to do. The next time that you find yourself at odds with another Christian, maybe someone here today, I I want you to be sure that you talk to Jesus before you go and talk to them. I want you to focus on what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus has done for this other person before you go and talk to them. That that kind of unity only comes from the Lord. It's given by Him in Christ. So we have seen the pleasure of unity. We've seen a couple of pictures of this unity. But finally this morning, I want us to see the permanence of unity. The permanence of Christian unity. In verse 3, as David talks about brothers who dwell in unity, he says, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And then here it is. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So the ultimate blessing that God gives to his people who are dwelling together is life forevermore. Lasting life, eternal life. It is this picture of God's people living forever in community. And what this psalm is getting at as it closes is that there is the permanence to our unity that we have with each other. You know, there are some relationships that last a long time, and there are other relationships that only last for a season in our lives. Do you know that in kindergarten, first and second grade, Michael Miller was my best friend? I mean, Michael, he grew up on a farm too, just like I did. His dad raised chickens, my dad raised cows and milked them. We we could relate to each other in that way, but we also loved to play sports, football, baseball, basketball. We would get our bikes together and we would ride our bikes around. We'd play cops and robbers, superheroes. We'd go over to each other's houses, go into each other's barns, and we'd build these huge forts out of straw. And then we would play in them for hours on end. He had a dog named Balto. He had a dog named Husky. I had a dog named Balto. Boy, did we have a good time hanging out together. In first, second, kindergarten, first, second grade, we were inseparable. You know, I haven't heard or seen uh, Michael Miller since 1984. I mean, I, I don't know where he is. I can't find him anywhere. There are just some relationships that last a whole lot longer than others do. And you could probably think of some people that you know from your grammar school or junior high or high school. Maybe you spent every waking moment with them in that short season of your life. Now you don't have a relationship with them anymore. And, and some relationships just don't last very long at all. 
Others, though, they last a whole lot longer. They're, they're kind of like family relationships. Long after your high school girlfriend has married someone else, and I'm sorry to be the one to break this to you, but long after your high school girlfriend has married someone else, long after that junior high baseball teammate who is so good is now obese and unathletic, Long after that the, the, you have lost touch with your best friend from grammar school and he's moved away and started some major fortune 500 company, long after all of your uh, brother long after that, your brother and your sister, your cousins, they're still going to be your family. That, that's not going to change. That's how family works. The bonds of family stand the test of time, and nowhere is that truer than in the family of God. Because our relationships with other Christians last a whole lot longer than just this life. They last on into eternity. You see, the unity that you have as brothers and sisters in the Lord, it is a permanent unity. It is unending. It, is, it lasts forever. And that makes sense because our unity is rooted in a unity of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they have had since the very beginning of time. That unity has been poured out by God the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm reminded of the great prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples as his disciples were standing right there just hours before the cross. He knew that his time on this earth was quickly coming to an end. And here's what he prays, John chapter 17 and verse 21 His disciples are hearing this, and Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. It makes sense that an eternally unified God would make an eternally unified people. And because our relationship with, our, uh, with other believers is part of something that is everlasting, what does that say about how we should treat each other? Well, we ought to treat each other with, uh, as permanent companions, not, not simply as people who are a part of our lives for a short season, but companions forever. As believers, we will be a part of this world that is without end. We will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth one day. But but that ought to impact the way that we live right now, the way that we see each other, the way we treat each other right now. The reality is, is that we are stuck together forever. And that shouldn't be looked at as a bad thing, because it's not. It is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. We won't be lonely in eternity. It's not just that we, are, we won't be apart from God, but we're not going to be apart from each other either. We're going to be brothers and sisters on into this eternal community. Our, heavenly, uh, our earthly family relationships, rather, they, they are significant. But the family relationships that we have within the church are greater than that. They are eternal. They are permanent. We're called to love each other now, to seek unity in this life. But the great thing about that is that when we do this, we're participating in the love relationship that is going to last on into eternity. And so when you love fellow believers, you are displaying a unity that exists within God himself. 
and that he has poured out upon you so that you can continue through his, the power of his spirit to live in this unity. When you show this unity as believers, it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing that will be enjoyed throughout all of eternity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant from now and forevermore. Let's pray.